0: It's Sunday morning, and we are in a continuing study on several subjects. I can't get into one subject without covering a lot of areas. Before I start the message this morning, I want to give you a little bit of information. I'm here to teach you not to look important to be some important preacher. I want you to learn what the Bible says and what's correct text and what correct information is that's why i've got these books here i've got a library at home with several thousand books in my library and i I teach what is right and i teach what is wrong i do not believe in the current translations of the bible living bible that is good for putting in your fireplace and starting a fire with that's about all it's good for I do not believe in the NIV. NIV. I do not believe in the Revised Standard Version. I do not believe in the New England Bible. In anything that comes out of the Westcott and Hort text, Westcott and Hort, Mr. Westcott and Mr. Hort were supposedly scholars back in the eighteen hundreds. They concocted the the NIV, not the NIV, but the what they call the Westcott and Hort Text. They took part of it out of the Vatican out of the Vatican and part of it out of Saint Catherine's Cathedral. Saint Catherine's Cathedral is in Alexandria, Egypt. Alexandria, Egypt. Catherine's Cathedral. And what was? Why did they have an Alexandrian text? It, huh? <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. I'm thinking ahead of myself. Saint Catherine's Cathedral. I'll just put a C there. I don't believe in the Westcott and Hort text. You have the textus receptus, and it goes right along with the majority text. Majority. You have the Texas receptus. I'm not going to give you a lot of this. I can talk for an hour on this. I'm just going to give you some basic things. Why we don't believe in the Westcott and Hort text. Mr. Westcott and Mr. Hort are trying to tell us that in 1881, when they came up with these, they call it the Codex Aleph and the Codex Beth. Aleph and Beth, Beth, and the are the A and the B, and it's called Westcott and Hort. They concocted these in 1881. What they're trying to tell us: we did not have the correct text from the from the fourth century. That the correct text of the Bible lay in the Vatican. And well, here's what's amazing: the Roman Catholic Bible does not come from Westcott and Hort. It comes from the Textus Receptus. That's amazing to me. But they simply changed. The Roman Catholic changed the part of the Ten Commandments. uh, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Because they didn't want that. They have graven images all over the Catholic Church. But theirs comes from the text, from the textus receptus. There are 6,500 words that are not in the Westcott and Hort or the Aleph and Beth, that's in the uh Texas Receptus. Now, it takes a lot of studying. You can spend your lifetime studying this and not get a real clear view of it. I've got some books that you can get. Uh, there, is a, there is a a set of books, it's a two-volume set written by Dean John Burgeon. Dean John Burgeon. He was a dean of a seminary in the eighteen hundreds, and he he was called the champion of lost causes because he defended the Textus Receptus, and he brings you some of the most outrageous things that Mister Westcott and Mister Hort uh, did. The NIV, when it it didn't come out till night. 19- 1966. I was 27 years old when the when the NIV the new international version came out if you're sitting in a church or watching some preacher and he's reading along out of an NIV and you got a King James Bible all of a sudden he just loses you have you ever been in a church and seen that going where in the world did he go well that's because he's got a false text. He's in an NIV. And I don't believe in the NIV. I don't the NIV, it does away with the deity of Christ. And the RSV, the revised standard version, all comes from the West Cotton Horde. Even the American Standard comes from the West Cotton Horde. Don't believe in any of that. Can you get some of the truth out of the West Country? Yes, you can get some of the truth, but it'll say some things that's outrageous. The worst thing, over in Psalms, the 12th chapter, David said God's word will be here in every generation. Well, they're saying that it was hidden in the Vatican and in St. Catherine's Cathedral from the 4th century century until 1981 they're saying we did not have the true word of God until 1881 that's outrageous these two guys had some crazy beliefs they believed in Mariolatry Mariolatry is the worship of Mary along with Jesus they go along with the Roman Catholics on a lot of that and the NIV was at one time was the people who held the uh, uh, that held the documentation that published it was the same people in 1966 that distributed Playboy magazine? And Something's wrong with that. The worst thing about the Westcott and Hort text. This is the worst thing about it. It is an eclectic text So I don't know what that means well let me tell you what it means it means that they had to pick out they might have a text of one page another text they had like 5,000 extant if you see the word extant that means known texts they had you say what does that mean the Aleph and Beth codex. The codex means a manuscript not an original manuscript it means a copy let me put that up here since they did not have copy machines they had men sitting around transcribing these copies and they had all kinds of some men didn't like what they were looking at so they would change the text In in the Textus Receptus, 995 out of every 1,000 agree with each other. In the Westcott and Hort, in the original text, 5 out of a 1,000 agree with each other. They would have all these different texts or codices. We would say codics or codices. They would have all these texts, and they were saying that they could pick out which, if you had John 8, where the woman is taken in adultery, in one text, in John 8, in another text, they were saying they had to evaluate which was the best chapter and text to go to and put it into their Bible. You understand what I'm saying? Well, let me read something to you. Here's a great, great book written by Dr. Wilbur Pickering. It is the identity of the New Testament text. Let me read you some stuff that he says. He says, gosh, I can't read all of this. I just want to read a little of it. The men, the statements to be found in the prefaces of some versions of the Bible give the reader the impression that this improvement of the NIV is reflected in their translations. For example, the preface to the Revised Standard Version says, this is out of the wrong text the King James Version of the New Testament was based upon Greek text that was marred by mistakes containing the accumulated errors of 14 centuries of manuscript copying not true he puts in italics not true almost all T.R. readings are ancient T.R. Textus Receptus Then he goes on to say I'm not going to stay in this because I want to get back to the message He says, eclecticism, what is it? Where does eclecticism consist? Metzger explains that eclectic editor follows now one and now another of set of witnesses. In other words, you had any number of men working on this, and they were picking out which chapter, which verses belong in the Bible. I like what he says on this. He said, Caldwell spells it out. The textual criticism turns for its final validation and the appraisal of individual readings in a way involves subjective judgment. Subjective is an opinion of a bunch of people. Objective is the facts. The trend has been to emphasize fewer and fewer canons of criticism. Many moderns emphasize only two. That reading is to be preferred which best suits the context. That reading is to be preferred which best explains the origin of all others. These two rules are nothing less than concentrated formulas of all that the textual critic must know and bring to bear upon the solution of his problem. The first rule about choosing what suits the context exhorts the student to know the document he is working on so thoroughly that its idioms are his idioms. You've got to be an expert to be able to pick out the text. Its ideas as well known as a familiar room. The second rule about choosing what will be the correct text or eclecticism what could have caused the other readings requires that a student know everything in Christian history—you get that?—to be an eclectic text and pick it out, which could lead to the creation of a variant, a variation of readings. This involves knowledge of institutions, doctrines, and events. This is the knowledge of complicated and often conflicting forces and movements." What living person really possesses these qualifications? Nobody. And how can such rules be applied when neither the identity nor circumstances of the originator of a given variant is known? You're going to have to know everything about everything, every copyist, every man, his beliefs, when he's going to say, We'll pick this chapter instead of this chapter out of... We'll pick this, this manuscript out of this one. You'd have to be God himself to be able to do that. Love Mr. Pickering. Great writer. Now I'm going to get back to the message. Just thought I'd give you a little bit about these texts. I do not like... One of the worst things about the NIV is John 3.16. John 3.16 in the NIV. I keep one up here so you can read it. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. It doesn't say that. It says he gave his monogenes, his only begotten son. Only would be mono. Monogenes. Genes comes from genesis or genesis or nativity. And he didn't give his only son he gave his only begotten son the only one he took out of himself over in 1 John 3 and 1 the Bible says beloved now are we the sons of God and it does not yet appear what we shall be but we know that when he shall appear we'll be like him for we will see him as he is and he tells Moses you go tell Pharaoh let my son go, for Israel is my son, even my firstborn. God did not give his only one and only son. He gave his only begotten son, the one he took out of it himself. So that's my gripe about the Westcott and Hort text. That's just a little bit of my complaint. I've done a Westcott and Hort versus the Texas Receptus series. Now, if you wonder why some preacher loses you while you're reading your King James Bible, people say, what Bible do I need? You need a King James Bible. Why? Why not the new King James? Why not? All of your words, most of your word studies are listed in a concordance or any other number of books according to the King James or Text of Scripture. That's what it's listed to. Nothing wrong with the New King James other than the fact they changed some words that you cannot look up in a concordance. And you don't want that. I would rather go back to the words. Now let's get back to the message. Alright. We've been talking about Saul. I hope that's a little bit of a lesson that'll challenge you to look into this. I use the King James Bible because I believe it comes from the correct text. People say, "What did you use?" I use the Thompson Chain Reference Bible. has a lot of helps in it. This is what a lot of the scholars used in the early 1900s. A lot of the guys from the seminaries, and uh, I like the I like it. I'm very familiar with it. Now, we're talking about Saul. How Saul was chasing David all over the country trying to kill him. He was angry to say the least. He was infuriated with David. Saul was a good man when he first started. The Bible says there wasn't a goodlier man in all of Israel. But God, somebody called me yesterday, said, you said that an evil spirit from God entered Saul. I didn't say that. The Bible says that in the 16th chapter of 1 Samuel. You can look at that real quick. 1 Samuel, the 16th chapter, 16, and verse 14. But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord Trouble Saul, it came from God, and you've got an evil spirit several times here is troubling or coming and coming upon Saul now, what was wrong with Saul was something that we call the orgay. remember the g g and Ada Any time you see a word that ends with Ada or Ada, it knew or the eight is on the end of the word. It is always feminine gender. And I've had some of the the so-called Greek scholars, and they are Greek scholars, they just don't know enough about the Bible. You can study Greek and spew out Greek all day long, but if you don't know the scripture with it, you don't know the truth. Mr. Mount says that the orgay can be God's, God's wrath also. I deny that. I do not believe a lot of the guys want to face the truth about where the wrath of man comes from. Man's wrath comes from God. Orge is the anger and the rage that a man has when he's uh, jealous. Envious and he doesn't like it because somebody has stolen something from him. Maybe you don't like it because somebody's stealing the attention, or they come into a room and they're a little obnoxious, a little know it all, and you think that's terrible and you want to put them down for that. Maybe they haven't developed to be where you are yet. We're not to have the orgay about anybody stealing what it's attention whether it's money or things or whether they get a promotion before us, if you ever become like Christ, you'll have to put down all that jealousy and all that envy and understand and be compassionate towards the believers that are struggling and they haven't arrived to where you are yet. And if you think you've arrived, you're not where you think you are. It's really peculiar how that I was a real humble little boy. I would just walk around being, kept my mouth shut all the time. And I was this humble kid. And then when I grew up, I learned to be proud of everything I could do. And then God put me through all this this fire and trials. He made me an old man and turned me back into a little boy once more. I don't try to get attention. I don't try to go out here. When, when we're over at the house making up the DVDs, I don't sit there and try to get attention. People may be asking me questions, and I'll be asking the questions, but I'm not trying to get attention. I'm not trying to be the leader every time I walk in the door. I don't believe in that. I believe what we have to do is humble ourselves under the hand of God, and the hand of God is evil man. And they'll press us down and oppress us till we come to that place. So if you if you're still at this place of pride, you've got to be humbled and turn back to a little boy and a little girl once again. How many old people have you seen? How many old believers have you seen that are lifted up in pride? Not many. When you get old, you just back off. And people say, but you haven't gone through what we've gone through. We've all gone what you've gone through. We've been proud and lifted up as young men. But when you get old, you don't want to be that. You don't want the attention anymore. That's what's wrong with the world is the orge. But the orge is the nature of man. Let me read something to you about the orge. Orge is man's nature. Look over here in... Look over here in... uh, Ephesians, the second chapter. One more time. Ephesians, the second chapter. And look here in, I believe it's this third verse. Third verse. Speaking of. Us being children of disobedience from the second verse among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were we used to be by nature the children of wrath even as others that word wrath is or gay it's feminine gender. Why does that have to be man's wrath? Because the Bible says in Revelation 17 and 5 that Babylon was the mother, the mother of all idolatry. Idolatry is the word pornea, P-O-R-N-E-I-A. Or porne various spellings of it or in We get our word porn from that, but porn doesn't mean just to look at naked men and women. Porn means idolatry. She's the mother of harlots, it says, and that word harlot is porne. So if if Babylon mother gave birth to, nurtured, all idolatry, idolatry, E I D O L O L A T. R-E-I-A is the word idolatry. It comes from ido, meaning to see, and latro, meaning to serve. It means to serve what you see and what it, you put into your eyes and your ears. It means to have an excessive desire to fulfill the flesh. That's also the word covetous. So, the orge is our nature. That's what it says, doesn't it? In Ephesians 2 and 3. Why is it our nature? And what is, what was Babylon mothered upon? What, where was she organized? Genesis 11. 4. They said they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And they said, here's what we want. Let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach into heaven. And here's our doctrine. Let us make us. This is all about us. A name. Name is the word Shem in the Hebrew. It is the word Onoma in the Greek. They have the same meaning. It means let us make our own authority we will come up with our own doctrine. Pride is the doctrine of self. It's I. I love the verse over in Isaiah 47. It's the most powerful verse about Babylon. I've got to read it one more time. I'll read this every time I get a chance. This is it. This is everything that Babylon's about. Isaiah 47. Verse 8, therefore hear now this, thou art given to pleasures, that dwellest carelessly, that says in thine heart, I am, and nobody matters but me. That's it. In everything we do, I shall not be a widow, neither shall I suffer the loss of children. But these two things shall come in a moment when you think you're on your way to the top. In one day the loss of children and widowhood, they shall come upon thee in their perfection for the multitude of thy sorceries and for the great abundance of thine enchantment. For thou hast trusted in thy wickedness. Wickedness is not just robbing banks and rape and murder. Wickedness is self. Thou hast said, none seeth me. God don't know what I'm doing. You ever been doing something? You thought, I'm too small in this great scheme of things. Forgot to know what's going on. Mm -hmm. Thy wisdom and thy knowledge, it hath perverted you. And thou hast said in thine heart, I am and none else beside me and i'm the only one that matters in this business situation on my job in my family whether i get the car whether i get this or not whether i get that diamond ring whether i get what i want and that's all that matters you ever felt that way oh you don't say it that way you just say i've got to have that car I gotta have that woman. I gotta have that house. I gotta get the promotion at work. If that guy gets it, I'll be so angry at him, and I'll get him for that. You ever been like that? Yep, we all have, haven't we? There's no temptation taken one man, but it's common to all men. Now, I know what's in your heart. God's made me, made me admit and own up and confess what's in my heart. He nearly killed me at one point in life. I mean, I was in a hospital state that was devastating. And I have had to learn, I've got to deal with me above everybody else. Now, I want to give you, where does that gate come from? Well, it comes from God creating us from the corrupt dust of the ground. That's our nature. That's what you're going to fight the rest of your life, is trying to get even with people. Trying to get even is... I've got a section of a set of books. It's O-R-G-E. It's out of Kittle's New Testament Greek words. And it'll tell you what it's about, what Orge is about. One of the simple, short definitions is against other men, against God. And it is the wrath that's upon man that comes from god in your very nature and you say i don't ever feel angry at people have you had the least bit of resentment of somebody getting something and you have a hard time admitting to yourself that you believe you deserved it and they didn't you ever had that what you've got is what you're supposed to have and you're not supposed to have any more than what you have god made every one of us that way or gay It's the impulsive nature in man, or the beast in man, the impulsive state of the human disposition. I like that. Not blind anger, but he uses a word I don't believe in. He says demonic excess of will. It's just the excess of the will in the nature of the tragic person goes hand in hand with ananke that's pressuring people, and necessity and fate. Let me read something else here to you. It is revenge and punishment. I'll get them somehow. I'll get what I deserve here. And he goes on to say, "Orgay, which is already in tragedy, is always seen to be protecting something recognized to be right. It's only right that I have my way." Orgay itself acquired the meaning. Of punishment. You're going to punish people. God says vengeance is mine. I will repay. Thus saith the Lord. Remember the word vengeance. I've given it to you a dozen times. Remember. It? Does anybody remember vengeance? Nobody. Huh? No. Ek. Decay. Ek or ek decasis it means decay right ek out I'm going to write out I'm going to make things right and you're not you can't make somebody behave have you found that out yet you can't change their heart can you egnikasis is the word revenge or vengeance it belongs to me God says if anything's to be made right I will do the making right if you get involved I'll stop you when you start trying to fix things and make it right or gay acquired the meaning of punishment or gay which is already in tragedy has always been protecting something recognized to be right you're going to protect yourself Anger is natural and even necessary for great acts and virtues. For military valor, that's all well and good. But have anger for yourself. And this anger is accompanied by many other things. And it was called the furies in the ancient world. The furies is going to be vengeance, revenge, getting angry, getting back at people. We're only to be angry at one thing, and that's preachers who are preaching a doctrine that eats like a canker. It's false doctrine. That's the only thing that we're to be angry at. We're to be angry at those people and those winds of doctrine that make the church apathetic. That's why I'm angry at these preachers in America. They're not telling the truth. They're talking about a David cross, self-denial, death to self, and so forth. And the orgy was called the wrath of the gods. in the ancient world, little gods. That was the the furies was the wrath of the pagan gods. Well, the pagan gods are just self. Zeus, in his anger,s against Prometheus, causes the punishment to follow the fault immediately. And this goes on and on. I don't have to read all of that. Where let me show you where the Bible says this. Or gay comes from God. Go to Romans, the first chapter. And this is what was wrong with Saul. He said David had stolen his throne. God, he should have known better than that. He trusted Samuel. Samuel is the one that ordained Saul to be king. He's, well, God ordained him. Samuel anointed him king by anointing him with oil but that was the will of god god told samuel you go into southern judah i've chosen me a king among his sons and that would eventually be david the true king out of the tribe of judah now where did i say we were going oh, romans romans 1 this is why you need to look up words because this sounds like something that it's not when you look up the words it's totally different in the Greek text all right Romans the first chapter verse this is one of David's favorite verses verse 1 verse 18 for the wrath of god is revealed from heaven it says against all unrighteousness. If the word is not against, the word is epi. That is the word that's been translated against. Epi. Epi is one of the words that has been translated in in the New Testament. Epi means to cover with. That's the same prefix over there in Acts 2.38, when Peter says, they say, Peter tells them to repent. And that Peter's preaching to them about the resurrection, preaching to all these people at Pentecost. And they say, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent, every one of you, in the name of Christ. That word, he said, in, be baptized in be baptized for the remission of sins it actually says be baptized in or epi superimposing the name of Christ upon you name is the word onoma onoma means authority superimposing the authority of Christ I don't have time to go into it But there's no way he's telling 3,000 men at Pentecost to go be dipped in water. The nearest water was about 15 miles away at the Jordan River. And those Pharisees were not going to turn over their public works to dip 3,000 people in water. They're not going to do that because they just got through killing Jesus 50 days before this Pentecost. And they hated him. Why are they going to turn over their waterworks to dip? He's not talking about dipping people. He's talking about superimposing or covering with the name of Christ. And God's name is his authority, and that's his word. Now, I don't mean to get into baptism this morning. To cover all over. That's what epi means. So epi means to cover with. So... So, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, covering all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God covers men with the orgay. You can't say, well, if I've got the orgay and God wants me to have it, He created His people in physical bodies. The fact you have skin on you and you're in a physical body means you've got this desire for revenge in you. Everybody has it. I don't care how quiet you are. I don't care how backward you are. I don't care how sophisticated you are. How much you think you have it together, you've got the orgay in you. Don't we? Do you have it? I do. I know you do. <laughs> we all have that. If you don't even want to recognize it, it's going to be a long time before you get over it. And unrighteous of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Now, let me give you another verse that shows you this comes from God. Go over here to. Go over here to uh, Romans five. All right. Look here in Romans 5, we're going to start in verse 8. But God commendeth his love, his agape, toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, you're a sinner and you had been born again, and he is commending his love toward you, his agape. Christ died for us, the believers, the elect, much more than being now justified by his blood, Justified doesn't mean saved. Justified, D-K-I-O. D-I-K-A-I-O-O. It means to render innocent. To pronounce us innocent. To render innocent. That's what he's doing. We shall be saved, sozo. Now, here's what we're saved from. When you're a believer, when you're a believer in Christ, here's what you're saved from. We're saved from or gay through him. It says we're saved from tastes, tastes or gays, We're saved from the rage, and revenge. Well, you're, what's saved is the inner man. He says, now, we're going to start working on the outer man. And I'm going to put you through all kinds of trials and problems until you learn to behave yourself and get over getting angry at everything that comes along. We don't even have any right to be angry at the world, ever. Well, that's a hard thing to deal with, isn't it? Why do we not have any right to be angry at the world? Because God has made all the people in the world what they are. You're either a vessel of wrath or you're a vessel of mercy, which God has before prepared to glory. If you're a vessel of mercy, when you look at the world and they're hurting you and hurting a lot of other people, why is it you're not supposed to be angry at them? Because God made them that way, He made them vessels of wrath and fitted them to destruction. He made them natural brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed. If God made somebody, organia is the word in Second Peter in Second Peter two and twelve, He made them natural brute beasts. They were born to be full of orgay and never get over it. Well, who made them that way? God made them that way. What right do we have? What we do is engage ourselves in their their type of living when we say, I have a right to get angry at them. I've had people come here and do me wrong and lie about me and tell stories about me, and I don't get angry anymore. I'm talking about the last four or five times this has happened. I don't get angry. What do you get? Well, I get sad and grieved. And that's okay, because Jesus is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Expect to be lied about when you live righteously and godly. It's just going to happen. So he says, we're saved from wrath through Christ. All of this was put here by God. God is the one, and even whenever the Bible looks like, it looks like it's saying something it's not saying. Let me show you what I'm talking about go over here to go to mark the third chapter i'm not going to stay on or gay i'm going to come back and give you something or gay every week i'm going to get back to saul because he was full of the or he said the throne belongs to me and samuel said not anymore it doesn't you have not you have not done the will of God at Amalek. You did not do the will of God in the 13, 14, 15 chapters of First Samuel. So Samuel tells Saul, God's taken the kingdom from you and going to give it to your neighbor down in southern Judah, from Bethlehem, Judah, and have him going down there to pick out a king among the sons of Jesse. And when he went down there, he God had picked God picked out, not Samuel, God picked out David because the first person that Samuel that Saul excuse me, that Samuel looked at when he got down there was the oldest son of Jesse. Jesse and Saul Samuel, excuse me. Jesse and Samuel believed that Elijah, surely this is the Lord's anointed, because he's tall, he's strong, and is a great soldier in Saul's army. God said, I haven't chosen this. God called Abine- uh, called Eliab this. I haven't chosen this tall guy. I don't want him. Do you have any more sons? He said, yes, there remains the youngest, and he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said, I'll not leave till you bring him in. And they brought in David. God says, this is him. So God picked out David to be king of Israel. The word got through all of Israel. And everybody knew about it. And Saul thinks that this was David's idea, or I believe he really knew it wasn't David's idea because everybody knew that David had been anointed by Samuel. And Saul trusts Samuel. That's what gets me. He trusts him. Saul was a typical, was typical rebellious man, full of orgay, that was a believer. This God's program he was in God's program that's right and an evil spirit from God entered Saul that shows that several times it was an evil spirit from God that came into it I'm going to show you a couple more times here look over here in Mark now this looks like it's saying something it doesn't say in chapter 3 And Jesus entered again into the synagogue, and there was a man there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day. They said, You can't do any healing on the Sabbath, that they might accuse him. These are the Pharisees going to accuse Jesus. And he saith unto the man which had the withered hand, Stand forth. And he saith unto them, Is it lawful to do good? on the sabbath days or to do evil and to save life or to kill and they held their peace they were already infuriated why were they infuriated well he's going to heal on the sabbath and he just got through healing a man in the previous chapter well let me read the next thing it says when he had looked around on them with anger it looks like jesus is anger angry you cannot be grieved and angry at the same time. They're two different methods of emotions. He looked around on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts. Jesus wasn't angry. the the men were angry at him because in the previous chapter he had told the man that was born of four, brought to him through the tiles of a roof he said thy sins be forgiven thee and they said you can't forgive sins only God can do that they're already infuriated at him he's talking to the same Pharisees and Sadducees here they said, you can't forgive sins. So they're already infuriated at him. That word anger is the word gay. Okay. It's not, he looks around on those people. They had the anger and he was grieved at their anger for wanting to heal a man here on the Sabbath day. Look at the man before that in the second chapter. Second chapter, there's a man born of four there in verse 3. And he is a man that is... Uh... Well, let me read up from the first verse. Again, he entered into Capernaum. Capernaum is on the very north end of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus moved his city, where he operated from. He moved from Nazareth, was up here in the land of Zebulun, over to very top of the Sea of Galilee. That's where Capernaum was, right up here. So... He's put his headquarters up there on the top of the Sea of Galilee. That's where Capernaum is. And after some days it was noise that he was in the house. And straightway many were gathered together in so much as there is no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. So he's in this house and it's very crowded. And they came unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. Four men are carrying this man sick of the palsy. And when they could not come nigh to him for the press, the pressure was too great, they wanted to bring this man in so Jesus can heal him. So they have faith that he can heal him as well as the man, right? They uncovered the roof. Well, they didn't have roofs like we do. They didn't have these roofs with a pitch on them. They had flat roofs so they could put there. Here's a door. And they had a staircase going up the side so they could put their. They could lay out their uh, corn and their figs and dry them here on the top of the house. And they had all these tiles on the roof. So they went up there on the roof and they pulled some tiles off, took the man down through the roof. Of the building, and when they could not come to nigh for the press, they uncovered the roof, where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. When Jesus saw the faith of all five of them, the four men carried him, and the man laying there with the palsy. He said unto the sick of the palsy, "Son." thy sins be forgiven thee and these scribes go crazy what are you talking about but there were certain of the scribes sitting there reasoning in their hearts why does this man speak blasphemy there's already anger at him here who can forgive sins but god only so by the time you get to the next chapter, they're still infuriated because he has forgiven sins, proving himself to be God. And immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto the scribes, they He says, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether it is easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee. Arise and take up thy bed and walk. But that you scribes may know. He didn't heal the man because of his faith. He forgave his sins because of his faith. Now when Kenneth Copeland quotes this, he says, The man received his healing. He didn't receive nothing. Jesus looks at the scribes. Here's the man sitting over here. He looks at the scribes. He said that you may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth forgive sins. Watch this, mystery. Rise up and walk. He didn't heal the man because of his faith. He healed him to prove who he was to the scribes. That's all. You can't come up and say he received his healing. He did not. So the scribes are infuriated at him. When you get to chapter 2, And Jesus is going to heal another man on the Sabbath. These people are just enraged at him. And they're the ones with the anger. They're the ones with the orgay, And they want to kill him for that. Now, let me give you a couple more of these. Look over here in Romans 4. Romans 4. Then I'll get back to Paul. I get back to Saul, excuse me. Get their names mixed up. Romans 4. All right. Romans 4. Now, let's read here in verse 14 and 15. Romans 4 for if they which are of the law be heirs faith is made void but the promise made of none effect because the law worketh or gay the fact that there is a law and that says thou shalt not that works the or gay of man man says you're stealing from me I'm going to get you for that you're taking my position You're taking the, you're having the conversation go your way when you walk into the room. You're more popular than I am. You're more glib than I am. You got more to say than I've got to say. Well, then study, son, if you don't like that. So he says, the law worketh or gay, for where no law is, there's no transgression. Now look over here in James, the first chapter. James. The orge comes from God. It's upon man by his nature, and it's something everybody here has to deal with. And if you don't deal with it, you'll be like Saul. You may have to end up dying for your sin one day. But if you belong to God, you're going to deal with the orge, with this vengeance that you have in your heart. Every one of us have it. Nobody's exempt from that. It's put upon man by his nature, isn't it? And maybe you don't like that. I didn't say that. The Bible says that. Look here in James. All right. James, the first chapter. Look at verse 19. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to or gay be real slow to get angry with somebody you say well if they'll straighten up I won't be angry at them no 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 you're not supposed to be angry at them when they don't straighten up because God made them that way you don't wait till somebody gets their life together to care about them boy that's a difficult statement for the wrath of man the or of man worketh not the righteousness of God does not work what's right righteousness D D I K A I O what is right is of God comes from d-k meaning right the orge and the d-k-a-o-s-u-n-e are complete opposites in God's universe you cannot have the gay and be doing what's right. Do we have it? Yes. Do you have to deal with it over time? Yes. That's what the fire and the trials and the persecution is about, is to get over ourselves. Didn't the Bible say over there in Romans, the third chapter, that we're saved from the gay through Jesus Christ? It's not you're saved all of a sudden. Over a long period of time, you'll get over the orgay. You'll get old and you say, I've got to stop doing this. Has anybody besides old people ever come to that conclusion? That you have to stop doing things you're doing. And do you still have a heart? The younger you are, when you come to the realization you've got to stop doing things, the harder it is to overcome it, isn't it? Now, I've got a whole list of these Orge, uh references, but we're saved from the orgay. The orgay that's a lifetime work of God in our lives. God's got to put you through fire and trials and persecution, have people want to put you down and stop you. You have to come. It's like I said when I said earlier, you get real high with your opinion of yourself, and you have to be brought low. The Bible says that we have to be brought down low. The man exalts himself will be abased, and the man that abases himself will be exalted so this is of God now let's get back over so this is what's wrong with Paul he thinks excuse me this is what's wrong with Saul I'll get in a minute this is what's wrong with Saul he thinks it was David's idea to take over his kingdom I don't really believe he believed that I believe it was God's idea but what he wants to do is fight against God doesn't he now let's go back to 1 Samuel I went through chapter 24 David is the king in Israel in the eyes of God as of the 16th chapter. When God tells Saul, uh, he tells Samuel, you, ordain, you, you anoint this young shepherd boy, he's my king. And then Saul gets, hold, gets wind of it. And the particular thing that really gets to Saul, after David kills Goliath, we've gone through it, David comes into town in Saul's court, comes into into where Saul is abiding at this time, and the women start singing, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands, and Saul is just outraged with orgay. That's my kingdom. You can't take my kingdom from me. That's my kingdom on the job. You can't take that from me. And you've worked for years, and they pick somebody up that the boss gets along with and promote him, and you've been there 10, younger, 10 years longer than he has, and you think you deserve it. The only way that you're going to get that kind of position is if you're buddy-buddy and palsy-wowsy with the boss, and you don't have any principle about it, you know have no conviction. That's the only way to work but you already the vessel of mercy which God has prepared to glory so you can't be you can't be what you want to be to get along with the world so you can rise up the ranks of of position it's not going to happen accept what you are we are what we are and we can't get over it can we I couldn't get over little Jimmy Brown I was just a little squirt growing up I was just skinny I never was popular. I couldn't speak in front of a class. I remember one time I was doing a report in American history class, and I had some cards in front of me, and I was just trembling and shaking. I couldn't hardly. I remember it was about Sir Francis and Drake and Trafalgar, and that's about all I can remember about the Armada of the Spanish fighting the French. And I I was up there just trembling and shaking. You'd think that a man that would stand in front of a crowd at, nearly 80 years old could speak when he was young i couldn't i just was i was just backward and pulled away from everybody and i know you don't believe that but that's the truth you don't know who god in fact you don't know who god can put in a position to be your boss somewhere in the future don't watch out how you treat people that guy that's uh, sagging groceries might be the manager of your company before it's over with now back here to where we were we've already talked about there's twice twice where David gets Saul trapped Saul is chasing David all over the country from the from 1st Samuel The 19th chapter, all the way through the 31st chapter, he's trying to kill David. God sees to it that David has a chance to kill Saul. But David won't do it. He says, that's the Lord's anointed. We don't touch the Lord's anointed. And he says that in the 24th chapter. Then chapter 25 and verse 1. This is important because the bible says Samuel died. Now, stop and think. It doesn't take anybody brilliant to figure this out. Could Samuel have written 1st and 2nd Samuel? <laughs> no, cause he's dead in the first verse of the 25th chapter of 1st Samuel. We don't know exactly who wrote these books. Samuel could have written the book up to this point, but he can't written past his death, could he? No. So, Samuel died, and all of Israel were gathered together and lamented him and buried him in his house at Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now, the fact that Samuel dies here, I brought this out to you. The fact that he dies in 25 and 1 means if he appears to Saul at the very end of this book, two years after this, it's two years later Then it is we know that what Samuel says to Saul over here in, right at the end of the book in the 27th chapter excuse me, in the 29th chapter that's where Saul goes to the witch of Endor and says bring up Samuel for me from the dead well the witch of Endor can't do that because she's just a witch which is phony the word witch is the word costs off when the Bible says thou shalt not suffer a witch to live witch was not an old hag with a hooked nose with warts all over her face riding across the sky going "Ah, that's not a witch soft is the word witch. It means to whisper or talk smooth. It's like good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. This is a concoction, this old hag riding a broom. That's not the truth. A witch was a smooth talker. Hey, Eve... Thou shalt not surely die. You don't have to really repent of sin. Just walk down the aisle and accept Christ and you're home free. You kind of live the way you want to live. God wants you to have lots of money and and things. Any preacher that talks like that and talks smooth, he's a witch. Billy Graham was a witch. Charles, Charles Stanley is a witch. Without a doubt, Kenneth Copeland is a witch so is td jakes they're witches they're smooth talkers telling you how god wants you to have money and things they're flatterers the bible says we are not to use flattering titles we're not to flatter people i don't flatter anybody i will tell you the truth if you don't want the straight answer don't ask me i've had people say do you believe this i say absolutely not do you want to know why I don't beat around the bush and try to make them feel better about their question. I don't do that. say, so no. Now, I'll tell you why if you want to know. Have you learned to use great plainness of speech yet? Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3 and 11, Seeing we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. Great is the word polis. P O L U S. Polis means often. Don't just use plainness once. Use it often. Plainness is the word parhesia. P A R R H E S I A. It means to be blunt. It doesn't mean to be abrasive. A lot of you have asked me questions. I say, no. Don't believe that at all. I have people say, Well, do you believe in water baptism? No, I do not. Would you like to hear me explain it? I will explain. Whenever I say something that blunt, I will be, it means to be blunt to the point. It means do not circumvent. You say, I don't know what that word means. Let me give it to you. Circumvent means to beat. Circum, get the word circle from that. Don't beat around the bush. Get to the point. Don't sit there and talk, oh, let me see, how can I make these people feel better? If they're elect, they'll hear blunt, plain speech. If they're not elect, they're not going to like anything you're going to say. So go ahead and get to the point. Don't say, I've got to talk smooth to make, keep these people from being angry at me. Now, we're there in the twenty-fourth chapter where that they trap Saul inside of a cave. Saul is chasing David. Right before that, in the very end of chapter 23, Saul has trapped David, and he can't get away. He surrounded him, he's compassed him about, and God sends the Philistines to Jerusalem to attack him so a messenger can come to Saul and say, Saul, Saul, Saul! The Philistines are attacking Jerusalem. He says, well, I don't know which way to go. I have to go back and take care of the Philistines. And David gets away. And then we see that Saul comes back to chasing David. Isn't this amazing? How many times does Saul say, I'm not going to kill David? <laughs> does that mean anything? Doesn't mean a thing. Because he keeps pursuing David and he says, "When well, I don't need to go into all the times he said it, but he says to Jonathan, I'm not going to kill your friend David. And the very next day, he's out after him. Now, go over here. I'm not going to go into the 25th chapter. That's all about Nabal. And uh, I'm going to go over here to the 26th chapter. We'll get back to Nabal and Abigail, his wife. David takes Abigail from Nabal. Nabal is a very wicked man. David says, I'm the king of Israel, and I need some food. And Nabal says, I'm going to give you food, not giving you anything. And and then Nabal is killed, and David takes Abigail, his w- wife, to be his wife. So that gives David, David a wife named Abigail and a sister named Abigail. So you're going to have to keep this straight, okay? You'll find his sister named Abigail over there in the second chapter of First Chronicles. Abigail, his sister, Abigail, his sister, has a son named Amasa. And Amasa, David's going to try to replace... Zeruiah, Z-E-R-U-I-A-H. She's got three sons, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now, Asahel is not going to be a problem because Asahel is killed when he's chasing Abner in a, they're having a, they're having a, in 2 Samuel, they're having some war games. And and Abner's, Abner has taken the place of Saul, the king, because Saul has been killed at the very end of 1 Samuel. So only one man is there that can lead the troops, and that's Abner. Abner's a good man. Abner comes from Ab and Nair. Ab is father and Abner's father was a man named Nair. Nair. So Abner means the son of Nair. Well, Abishai and Joab, they're the surviving sons of Zeruiah. Joab is a killer. You don't, want to have mess, you don't want to cross him at all. That's David's nephew. Joab is the one that got to be commanding general of David's armies. The way that happened, well, let me show you how it happened. I'm kind of skipping around. But flip over here to First Chronicles. Because you're not going to know how this happened. I'd just like to reveal this. And along the way, I'll mention it again. First Chronicles, I believe it's the 10th chapter. First Chronicles 10. Verse 4, I'm just going to show you David's nephew, how he became David's commander-in-chief. He became the four-star general of David's army. Verse 4, David, this is in chapter, excuse me, chapter 11. Chapter 11 of 1 Chronicles. And David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, which is Jebus. This is not hard to remember. Because that's where the Jebusites lived. Jebus. And one of the tribes of all of the evil men was the Jebusites. Now, if... Gosh, this takes me so many things. If Joshua... When he came into Israel, if he'd done what God said and drove out all the Hittites, the Jebusites, there would have been no Jebusites in this chapter. But they didn't. They intermarried with him. Lordy mercy. So David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, which is Jebus, where the Jebusites were the inhabitants of the land. And the inhabitants of Jebus said to David, Thou shalt not come hither. You can't come here where we are. Well, that's a wrong thing to say to David with all of his army. Nevertheless, David took the castle of Zion, which is where Jerusalem sits, and that's where the Jebusites were, which is the city of David. So they take Jebus, changed the name to Jerusalem. And David said, Whosoever smiteth the Jebusites... First shall be chief and captain. So Joab, the son of David's sister, Zariah, went up first, and he was chief. He became the commander of David's armies. And he was bad news for anybody that bucked up against him. You'll see movies about David. It's always got... Joab standing over there, yes sir, David, yes, and all he's doing is being polite. He wasn't polite at all. He was a bad, bad man to mess with. And David dwelt in the castle, therefore they called it the city of David, and it became Jerusalem. Now, go back over here. So, now, Joab was the commander and he was a killer. He killed he's the one that David sent the message, said After he got Bathsheba pregnant in the eleventh chapter of second of first Kings, he sent her husband, Uriah the Hittite, into battle and told Joab, You withdraw from him so he'll be killed. So Joab David employed Joab his nephew to murder To murder Uriah the Hittite. And Joab, Joab and Abishai got together and murdered Abner, which was a good, righteous man, uh, commander of northern Israel. And David, at one point, David, Joab was just too much for him. He said, I can't handle him. In fact, when Absalom, David's son, had, he had his army drive his father, David, out of Jerusalem, he went north and went across the Jordan River and went to a city called Mahaniam, and that was a city of refuge. When they fight Absalom's armies uh, during that battle, Absalom has all this long hair, beautiful hair, and he He rides a donkey up under a tree, and his hair gets caught in the tree, and he's hanging there. He's not dying, and Joab comes upon him. Joab says, this is my chance. And he throws a spear and runs Absalom through. Now, the thing is, Joab had been told by David, and don't anybody, he had told Abishai, Abishai and Joab were with him when he fled Jerusalem he said don't anybody harm my son Absalom well Joab runs a spear through him just like Joab didn't care what David said I'll say it to you the generals ran the army they ran the nation they ran the whole show if you got a general behind you you could take over Joab didn't want to take over. He just didn't listen to David. And so David gets to where he cannot handle Abishai. Abishai is always running his mouth. Uncle David, I'll kill this dead dog. He's talking about Saul. David said, you don't touch the Lord's anointed. And finally David is saying, are these sons of Zerai are too hard for me. God, what did you give me these nephews for? to rule your life because after the sin of David with Bathsheba God says the sword will never leave your house I'm going to bring the sword to your house to your two nephews Joab and Abishai I'm going to bring it to you through your son Absalom I'm going to have your son, Amnon, rape your daughter, Tamar. And then I'm going to have Absalom plot for two years at a festival to kill Amnon, murder his brother. The onion rest is in Israel. (laughs) That's all I got to say. And through his whole life, and his son Adonijah, David's son Adonijah tried to take this kingdom from Saul or from Solomon in the first chapter of first Kings. How do you get to the King of Israel through his kids? How does he get to you through your kids? You don't want that, do you? And that can happen to all of us because of our or gay. David tries to appoint Amasa his sister Abigail's son as commander of Israel instead of Joab you don't kick Joab out Joab walks up to Amasa and says hey brother how you doing hold this stabs him under the fifth rib and kills his so Joab is truly a. if there's a murderer it was Joab you don't fool with him. And then after he comes back, after he kills Absalom, the word goes back to David that Absalom is dead, and David starts weeping, saying, Absalom, my son, my son. And Joab says, Uncle David, why are you mourning over him? He's trying to take your kingdom away. Joab chewed out David like he was a red headed stepchild. No offense. <laughs> he just chewed out David, he didn't care. not amazing? Now, back over here. Sometimes I'll give you... It's hard to give you all of these facts all at once. I'll remind you of some of these things as we go through these chapters. All that was wrong with Saul, he had orge coming out his ears. And he's going to kill David. Look here in chapter 26. David and Abishai... Abishai, his nephew, was with him everywhere he went. In fact, when he was coming back from that battle against Absalom, his son, they were, when he was fleeing from Absalom, before he crosses the river, a man named Shemai, H-H-E-M-A-I, he is a man, he's throwing rocks, throwing stones at David with Abishai and the man is screaming he, is of the, he was one of Saul's one of Saul's people he was of the tribe of Benjamin Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin and he's screaming at David saying you stole my master's throne David just drops his head he knows he's committed all these sins he knows what he's done. And Abishai says, Uncle David, I'll go kill this dead dog. He says, Shut up, Abishai. God hath bidden him to throw stones at me. Let him throw stones. Do you ever say that when somebody starts throwing stones at you and they're being completely unfair? God will get his revenge on Shemai before it's over with. Leave him alone. People that give you a hard time, just leave them alone, okay? Don't try to fix them. You can't. Why are they in the condition they're in? God made them that way. You want to go against the will of God and say, I want to get them back? Get them back what? For God picking them up and whipping you with it because they're nothing but a, a switch in God's hand? You want to say, I don't like it because you're whipping me with this evil man in my life, Lord. You ever done that? Every one of us have. That's our gay. Okay. Now let's read here in chapter 26. They trap Saul once again. And Abishai begins to run his mouth. Let's read. And the Ziphites came unto Saul to give you a saying. Doesn't David hide himself in the hill of Hakilah? which is before Jeshimon. Then Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 chosen men of Israel. Now remember, these are chosen warriors in Israel. David's only got at the most 600. Remember that? This will put us in mind of David numbering Israel at the end of Second Samuel. David's wanting to take credit because he's got a million eight hundred thousand men at the end of Second Samuel to conquer all his enemies, and so he numbers them and says, "I'm bragging on all of my great mighty men of valor." God says, "That's not what caused you to whip Israel when Saul was chasing you." Chosen men of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph, and Saul pitched in the hill of Hikalah which is before Jeshimon, by the way. But David abode in the wilderness, and he saw that Saul came after him in the wilderness. And Saul has promised he's not going to kill David, but boy, he's trying to do everything to do it, isn't he? David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul was come. In very deed, he's really on the way. And David arose and came to the place where Saul had pitched. And David beheld the place where Saul lay, and Abner the son of Ner, that's Saul's commanding general, the captain of host of his host, and Saul lay in a trench. And the people pitched round about him; they were laying on the ground around Saul. Then answered David and said to Himelech, the Hittite, and to Abishai the son of Zerahiah, brother to Joab. He says, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul to the camp? Boy, Abishai is jumping at, he's just chomping at the bits. I'll go. And Abishai said, I will go down with thee, Uncle David. So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and behold, Saul lay sleeping within the trench, and his spear stuck in the ground at his bolster. But Abner and the people lay round about him then said Abishai to David God's delivered God hath delivered thine enemy into thy hand this day now therefore I'll kill him uncle David I pray thee with the spear even at the earth at once I will not smite him a second time I'll plunge it right to his heart and David said to Abishai no, no, Abishai. Gosh, you're always bowing off. That's why he cried out in Second Samuel, These sons of Zerah are too hard for me. I can't handle Abishai and I can't handle Joab. Joab is always wanting to murder somebody. Abishai, destroy him not for who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless God had him anointed by Samuel over there in that 12th chapter of First Samuel and he was a goodly man when it started David said if God wants him dead God will have to make him dead we're not going to do that nephew leave him alone and David said, furthermore, as the Lord liveth, this is not, Kenneth Copeland Use these, don't stretch your hand against the Lord's anointed, that's me. You're not the Lord's anointed, you don't know nothing about the truth. And a lot of these false teachers say, we're well, the Lord's anointed. No, you're not, you're anointed with truth there in First John 2 and 27. And you have no truth. Now, where was I? 10. David said, furthermore, as the Lord liveth, the Lord shall smite him, or his day shall come to die. When God's ready, he shall descend into battle and perish. David is prophesying Saul's end in the 31st chapter. He's going to descend into battle against the Philistines, and he's going to die in battle. But we're not going to have anything to do with that. You got that, nephew? The Lord forbid that I should stretch forth mine hand against the Lord's anointed, but I pray thee, take thou now the spear that is in his bolster and the cruise of water, and let's go. I'll have some proof to show him. And David took the spear and the cruise of water from Saul's bolster, and they gat them away, and nobody saw him, nor knew it, neither awakened. For they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord was falling upon them. This sleep came from God. Nobody's going to wake up. Then David went over to the other side. And watch what David does. He's going to reprimand and chew out Abner. That's supposed to be his bodyguard. That's supposed to be his top man. And stood on the top of the hill afar off in a great space between them. And David cried to the people. And to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Abner, answerest thou not, Abner? Then Abner answered and said, Who art thou that crashed to the king? And David said to Abner, Abner, you're his commander-in-chief. Why weren't you guarding him? David is looking out for Saul. And Saul is trying to persuade David to kill him. Will you look out for your enemy when he's pursuing after you? And David said to Abner, Art thou a valiant man? Who is like to thee in Israel? Wherefore then hast thou not kept the Lord the king? Abner, it's your fault. He's going to put the blame where it belongs. You're supposed to be his bodyguard looking after him. You didn't. Thou not, wherefore then hast thou not kept the Lord the King? For there came one of the people in to destroy the King, thy Lord. This thing is not good that thou hast done. As the Lord liveth, you are are worthy to die. Abner, I'm not even talking to Saul. And Abner was a good man. That's amazing. I'm about out of time, ain't I? because you have not kept the master the Lord's anointed. Now see where the king's spear is in the cruse of water that was at his bolt. I got it here. And Saul knew David's voice and said, Is this thy voice, my son David? <laughs> Isn't Saul funny? Is this David, my son's voice? And he's been caught again, had not he? And David said, It is my voice, O Lord, O King. David still giving him all the honor that God wants him to have. And he said, Wherefore doth the Lord thus pursue after his servant? For what have I done? Or what evil is in my hand? What have I done to you, Saul? Don't you want to say that to your enemies sometimes? Now, therefore, I pray thee, let my Lord the King hear the words of the, his servant if the Lord has stirred thee up against me, let him accept an offering. But if they be the children of men, curse be they before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day from abiding in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now therefore let not my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord, for the king of Israel is come out to seek a flea. Is that what you come to seek, a flea? I'm just a flea. He says that several times throughout this book. As when one doth hunt a partridge in the mountains, then said Saul, I have sinned. Do you believe him? I don't believe him. There's another lie in the Bible. Said by a man doing evil. Return, my son David, for I will no more do thee harm. You've said that before, Saul, a dozen times. Because my soul was precious in thine eyes this day. Behold, I have played the fool and have erred exceedingly. And David answered and said, Behold, the king's spear. Let one of the young men come over and fetch it. And the Lord rendered to every man his righteousness And his faithfulness for the Lord delivered thee into my hand today. And I would not stretch forth my hand against the Lord's anointed. And behold, as thy life was much set by this day in mine eyes, so let my life be much set by in the eyes of the Lord. Let him deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be thou, my son David. Don't believe this guy. David doesn't... David doesn't believe him. The next verse says so. Thou shalt both do great things, and also shalt still prevail. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. And look at verse 1 of chapter 27. Did David believe anything he was saying? Not a word. And David said in his heart, I shall not perish one day by the hand of Saul. Why do you believe it? I don't believe Saul, anything he says. You can't believe him. He lied all the time. He said all through here, I'm not going to kill David. I'm not going to kill David. Let's kill him. No, I shall now perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than I should have speedily escape into the land of the Philistines. David, had he trusted the Philistines more than he trusted Saul. And Saul shall despair of me to seek me any more in any coast of Israel, so I shall escape out of his hand. He's willing to spare the life of Saul. Are you willing to spare the life of your enemy that wants to destroy you, or do you insist on Godsman about him and rip him to shreds? Is that what you want? You realize how much this is about us. The orge is about us; God put it in us. God will conquer that in each one of us when he sees fit and he'll conquer our enemies if we can get it in our head what Paul said in the 12th chapter of Romans vengeance is mine if there's any repaying to do I will do it you don't do it am I out of time I'm out let's pray Lord thank you for truth teach us what we need to know about the orgay, about ourselves. Thank you for truth. Fight our battles because we cannot. Teach us that we can't fight our battles. It takes a lot of fire and trials, Lord. I know that personally. That's what it takes not to fight. Lead us to your elect, family. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Saul was full of the orgay, wasn't he? Couldn't believe nothing he said. Huh? Yeah, he's what? Yeah, you couldn't believe Jacob. What are you doing? You want some gum? Can I have that? Well, I don't need it, really. You want some gum? Come here. All right, here you go. Hold on. Can you hold on? Get out my big knife and cut this open, okay? Come here. There you go. Here you go, you want some gum? How you doing, Slim? <laughs> How you doing? <laughs> Hey, what are you doing? Have you been guilty of any of this? A little bit. A little bit. <laughs> Here you go. Jim, let me ask you a question. What? First Samuel chapter 10. It's, the Lord says he's going to make Saul a new, a new man. And the Spirit of God comes on him and he gives him a new heart. Is that like is he being born again there? I don't know. We know where there was not a goodlier man in Israel like Saul in the night chapter. Is that a condemnation or a No, that's a bragging on him. Yeah. He was a good man. Yeah. It's just that the position that he got as a coming from the tribe of Benjamin, God made him that way. Yeah. You know when he receives his new heart there in chapter ten, it's almost the start of his problems too. Yeah, it is, isn't it? What are you doing there? Hello. <laughs> well the thing is, that can be us when we're living in our contrariness. I don't even think most people know about this fight between Saul and David. It wasn't a fight, it was just a one sided pursuit. Well they don't when they read it they don't see that Saul's lying. He's lying, lying through his teeth. Yeah, they don't even know that. They just say, I'll not I'll not kill David, they just keep reading. Right. Not paying attention to what's being said. This is a narrative of a soap opera. That's yeah. what it is. And until you see that you're not and you're not gonna understand why you don't need to be involved in your gay. That you gotta get over it. Yeah. You can't hold things against people. God made him that way and you wanna hold it against the goat for being a goat? You get mad at him? I don't like it because you're a goat. He goes, you know, We go by this market over here and we see these goats. We go over and argue with them. Become a sheep. Accept me as your savior. It's crazy. Why do we get angry at the things that God has ordained? I've learned not to be angry at anybody that's left here and started trouble. If they come back, I say, you're not going to start trouble, are you? If you do, you don't need to come back. I've said that to two or three people, and they say, okay. It's just, to me, it's funny. How God gives us these illustrations in the Old Testament, and you don't read it slow enough to know what's going on. You can't hear this all at once. No. Well, you've got to take time, and you've got to study who are all David's nephews. That's right. Yeah, and you got to know that. Like that, until you know who they are and who's talking. Yeah, and and if you don't know that that Joab was a killer. Right. The guy, and he chewed David out when they come back from that battle with, when he killed Absalom. He goes back to Jerusalem.